Good evening and welcome to Mountain Talk on WMMT, the show where we get to delve into a topic over the course of an hour. Today we'll be talking about Standing Rock. We're sure many of you have at least heard about Standing Rock, the Dakota Access Pipeline and the water protectors who are trying to stop it. I'm here with Tanya Turner and Jonathan Hootman. We've all been hearing about Standing Rock on social media, but none of us have found a lot of mainstream media coverage about it. We wanted to learn more about what's going on there and how we're connected to it here in the mountains. So that's what we set off to do. And so here we are. We're bringing you what we've learned, including conversations with Crystal Wilcutts Cole, a Lakota woman living in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, with ties to Standing Rock, D.L. Hamilton and Karen Ireland, two women from Charleston, West Virginia, who just returned from Standing Rock, and Christopher Dooley, a veteran who just deployed to Standing Rock from Everett's, Kentucky. We'll do our best in the next hour to do what we can to create a clear picture. This is a complicated story with a very long history, but we hope to give you information and resources to continue your own education. First, we wanted to know the basics. What exactly is happening at Standing Rock? The who, what, why, where, and how? So we did some research and found thousands of people from Native nations from around North America have gathered near Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, North Dakota, in response to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineer permit for construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Energy Transfer Partners recently merged with Sunoco and claim to have already completed 92% of the 1,172-mile conduit slated to carry crude oil from North Dakota to southern Illinois if completed. Despite formal objections from tribal authorities, a Sioux Nation lawsuit, and facts that the pipeline would pass under the Missouri River just half a mile upstream from the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation boundary, the final federal environmental assessment in April concluded that there would be no direct or indirect impacts. In addition, all along the route of the pipeline are sites of religious and cultural significance to indigenous people, including burial sites of ancestors and many sacred places. In April, the camp of Sacred Stones at Standing Rock was established to resist the pipeline for seven months now. The camp is located at the edge of the Missouri and Cannonball Rivers near Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in Cannonball, North Dakota. One of the issues we were confused about revolved around land ownership and previous treaties. So we found an illuminating account of why the land is in dispute from CARE 11 News in Minnesota that states, quote, a look at the current map shows the proposed pipeline passing about a half mile north of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. But another map of the reservation after the 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie between the U.S. government and nine Indian tribes shows the pipeline cuts clearly through the middle of this boundary. And here is why many protesters feel the land does in fact still belong to the Sioux. The lines of the reservation started changing without Sioux approval in the mid-1800s, after gold was found in the Black Hills. The government, in particular Congress, passed a number of statutes unilaterally that altered the boundaries of the reservation and confiscated that land. The Supreme Court later issued a decision saying that the government acted unlawfully when it did that and awarded the tribes a large sum of money. At the time, it was more than $100 million to compensate for the taking of that land, but the tribes have refused to accept payment and instead want the land returned. End quote. So now the water protectors are defending territory that they feel they have sovereignty over. 
Everything, of course, happens within a historical context. We're only able to touch the tip of the iceberg here. So if you want to take a deeper dive into the history of this issue, Google Standing Rock Syllabus and check out the resources put together by the New York City Standing with Standing Rock Committee. So in our own exploration of this complex issue, we tried to start close to home, even with some really strange media blackout of this um, immense situation. There was some local coverage on the front page of the Coalfield Progress a week or two ago about a local Lakota woman over in Big Stone Gap who had been a part of some actions around Standing Rock in her local community. This interview with Crystal Wilcuts Cole from Big Stone Gap, Virginia, is really helpful in understanding some local context um, as a Lakota woman living here in the mountains, watching this play out in a place where she has not only a connection, but actually owns property in Standing Rock near uh, Cannonball, North Dakota. My name is Crystal Wilcuts Cole, and I live in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, and I'm originally from South Dakota. Cool. So could you tell me a little bit about um, your transition from how you came to be here in Big Stone Gap with us? Sure. Um, I uh, worked for the Bureau of Prisons, and uh, my husband worked for the Bureau of Prisons, too. And so we were in Maryland before this, um, working with them, and he had um, transferred to the prison, uh, the federal prison down here in Jones, Jonesville. So oh, that's how we got here. We've been here about nine years now. And can you tell me a little bit about your background in North Dakota? Um, well, I'm Lakota. I'm a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. And I also uh, have land at Standing Rock Reservation. And so I'm uh, really familiar with uh, Native issues in general, um, and then especially with what's going on uh, with the pipeline. Yeah, can you tell me about what it's been like um, watching uh, watching this kind of um, this unfold at Standing Rock, um, being so close to it, and having family and land there? Um, it's really heartbreaking. Um, to see what's going on, um, it's such um, a basic issue of just wanting to have clean water, you know, for ourselves, for our children, for everyone else's <laughs> children. Um, it's not like we're asking for something that they can't provide, you know, that uh, the government can at any moment step in and stop this pipeline from being built underneath the Missouri River, um, but they're not. And so uh, the people are just uh, getting together and uh, doing this on our own. Um, but luckily, we have a lot of allies out there, um, not just across this country, but around the world. And it's really amazing and um encouraging. I mean, it makes my heart really strong when I see all these people um, with their pictures and their videos and their t-shirts and, and making donations and showing up. And it's um, really, really encouraging. So I'm really happy to see that. 
it's hard to find uh, a lot of silver linings in this situation, but I guess those are, there they are. <laughs> um, yeah. We read and, and heard about an article that um, the Coalfield Progress covered. Would you tell us a little bit about the um, action you took there locally in solidarity with Standing Rock? Sure. Um, there was a national uh, call to action to protest the pipeline, the, Co- the Code Access Pipeline. And um, so people took action all across the country and around the world. Um, myself and my daughter, we um, had made our little signs. <laughs> and we had gone to protest Wells Fargo, um, the bank here in Big Stone, uh, because Wells Fargo has uh, money invested in the pipeline. So uh, we went there to just raise awareness to people that Wells Fargo was supporting a pipeline that um, is so destructive to our drinking water, to the people, to our sacred lands. I mean, they're, they're uh, digging up grave sites, ancient grave sites, um, to put this pipeline in. And so we wanted to let people know that um, we protested at Wells Fargo. Um, we had our signs. I had my drum. I was yelling at people. <laughs> yelling at people. Um, not. I wasn't yelling anything mean. <laughs> I was just uh, telling them, you know, to support. Please support Standing Rock. Uh, Miniwichoni water is life. And so we did that. Then we took our our protest uh, up and down the main street in Big Stone and got to talk to some people and let them know what was going on. And then the um, editor of the Post came out because we were right across the street from them. So he came out and uh, interviewed us and took pictures. And so I was able to um, get you know, the information out there that way, too. They put our, our the article on the front page. So that was a true blessing. Um, then we took our protest up to Mountain Empire Community College and walked through campus and walked through some of the, the buildings. And as we were, as we were going through um, one of the buildings carrying our signs, a man, a professor came out and asked us what we were doing. And he said, oh, that was, you know, this is great. Come in here and talk to my class. We're a sociology class, and we're talking about social justice. So I thought, oh, okay, this is, uh, what is it, serendipity? <laughs> so yeah. we, we um, you know, got to talk to this class, and, um, you know, I wanted to let them know that this... Um, Protest isn't just about Standing Rock. It isn't just about a reservation that's uh, hundreds or thousands of miles away from them. It's, it affects them because what they put into the water up there flows downstream. It's going to flow down the Missouri River, and it's going to flow down the Mississippi River. And there are 18 million people who depend on... It's just a really emotional subject for me. Um, But so many people depend on this. And I wanted them to know that this affects them, that if they uh, wanted hope for 
themselves and wanted hope for their children that they need to um, pay attention and to get involved. And so um, they uh, had me go into another class and talk to another class about that. And I saw some, you know, I I saw some eyes opening and um, people really connected with what I had to say. And so I was very thankful for that. Um, Then we went up to uh, the University of Virginia at Wise and walked through uh, the campus there, and I was playing my drum. <laughs> and a and, um, uh, girl had, I, I was about, we were about to go home, and a girl came running up behind me and asked, you know, what I was doing. And she said, oh, okay, I'm, I'm Comanche, you know, and I work for the paper. Can I interview you? And so we did an interview there for her paper, um, and so we we made you know a really good connection um, there, and then from there we went to the Wells Fargo in Norton, and um, did the same thing you know just played my drum, held our signs up, um, and uh, people were coming out of their their businesses to see what was going on. Um, the uh, a woman from Wells Fargo came out, asked what we were doing, and um, she, I don't think she even knew that Wells Fargo had money invested in the pipeline. So she went back in, and then um, after that, the police came <laughs> because I guess she had called the police on us. But, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't doing anything to obstruct traffic or pedestrians or anything like that. So, yeah. so he said, you know, he just said, carry on. And he was very nice. And then the editor for the Coalfield Progress came out, and um, he said a man called him and said, there's um, breaking news happening. <laughs> so he came out and interviewed us and took pictures as well. So we got to, you know, uh, our information out through through that paper, too. And I've had a lot of people reaching out um, through Facebook, um, who had read the paper, you know, who had seen seen um, the story and so wanted to support us and reach out to us that way, too. Congratulations and um, thank you for what you've already been doing to try to bring some um, local local connectivity to this issue of, of water and human rights, really, that are so important here. Mm-hmm. What what better to connect us to one another than water, especially here in the right. mountains where we have a lot of water quality issues. Um, right. I, I wonder, Crystal, if you would, um, to finish out, share with us, you said that you've involved your children in, in the actions that you took, and that is so brave and, and shows so much leadership as a parent. I think one of the things that so many people are struggling with, I work in K-12 education, and um, I'm friends with lots of parents. How, what advice do you have about talking with our children about the, both the issue of this horrible human rights violation we're watching play out on the news um, and also some of the media blackout and also the 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 beauty of the people's resistance to this and 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 movement for water um, well those are all really good questions um, I think that I would want parents to um, Tell their children to 
um, no matter what they see, to not, um, you can't tell someone to not be afraid because, you know, you, you feel fear and you can't help it, but to not let that fear stop you from um, fighting uh, and standing against anything that you see is wrong, um, anything that will cause uh, suffering to another human being, we have to stand up to it and against it. Um, we have to support each other. Um, as Native people, we're a circle. Um, everybody, no matter um, what your culture, your language, your religion, whatever you are, we're equal with the, not just people, but with the environment, with Mother Earth, with the plants and the animals, the water, the land. Um, we're all connected. We're all a circle, and we need each other. And if one is suffering, then we're all suffering. And so I hope that parents would um, talk to their children about this, about how important it is to uh, support the environment. We need the environment to live. <laughs> we need Mother Earth to live. If she dies, then we die. And she has uh, supported my life. And so we need, you know, all of our lives and we need to show up for her and stand for her. And so I hope that parents would tell these, talk to these things with their children and to take them out to protest. I mean, these are nonviolent protests. We don't want violence. We don't even want angry words um, because that's not helpful. Uh, negativity isn't helpful. We need to um, take the approach of love and compassion and um, to show the people that we're doing this because we love them, um, not because we want our way or, you know, it's because we truly love them and want them to have clean water and to, to have safety and for their children to have a future. And so take them out to these protests. Let them, you know, let their voices be heard because children, um, you know, oftentimes they feel like they don't have a voice, that nobody listens to them, but that children are sacred. So we need to take them out there and let them be voiced too. And don't be afraid um, because the more that we stand together, um, the stronger that we are. Um, as for the the media, um, I've been getting a lot of my information um, from people, from Facebook. I follow uh, Sacred Stone Camp on Facebook, uh, Chetty Shakoi Camp, Dallas Goldtooth, um, the Standing Rock Madigan Healer Council, and they're putting a lot of uh, updates. They're right there in the camp. They're uh, putting updates daily. Uh, videos, they're doing live feeds. You can actually see with your own eyes what's going on. And so um, I sometimes I'll go in and check CNN or Yahoo or different um, news outlets, and I don't see any mention of Standing Rock. And mm -hmm. so um, we really have to um, do a little more research and dig deeper to uh, see what's really going on. And if they're not um, reporting on Standing Rock, then what else are they not telling us? And so we need to really um, do our own research. 
Um, do you have any plans yourself to travel to Standing Rock at this time? I do. Um, my family and I are going to Standing Rock the last week in December. And so we plan on taking supplies up uh, to the water protectors and um, just lending our support. Um, and um, I wanted to let people know that if they wanted to make donations, um, so, uh, supplies or whatever, or if they wanted to start a caravan, that um, that would be awesome. We need people up there. We need bodies. <laughs> and so um, if people, um, I hope that if they're interested and they that they'll support us um, to go to SWVA, Standing Rock Solidarity, on Facebook. That's a Facebook page that was started by uh, people from Wisely in Scott Counties um, who were um, interested in, in Standing Rock, who were concerned and wanted to do something to support, uh, support Standing Rock. And so we're planning on doing a protest in Norton on Monday, December 5th, and also a fundraiser on Thursday, December 15th. Um, we don't have a space confirmed yet, but we're needing... Um, musicians, speakers, silent auction items, anything that people want to to donate, um, and also please come. Um, we really need you. <laughs> if you're listening to this, uh, I'm talking to you, not that other guy over there. Well, that guy too. Grab that guy and <laughs> you and <laughs> come to this event and support us, please. We need everybody. We need prayer. Um, and follow that uh, SWVA, Standing Rock Solidarity, uh, page on Facebook, and uh, we'll post updates and, and give you more details on these events coming up. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, no, I just want to, you know, uh, urge people to come and stand with us, lend your support in any way that you, you can, um, and pray. Most of all, pray. That is the most powerful thing that we have. Um, I just want to wish everybody uh, to have a good day and peace and love to you all. Uyasi. You're all my relatives. Thank you. So again, that was Crystal Wilcutts Cole. Next, we wanted to find some folks to talk to who had been to Standing Rock, and we were lucky enough to find Karen Ireland and D.L. Hamilton from Charleston, West Virginia. They had just gotten back from Standing Rock when we caught up with them via the phone. My name is Deborah Lynn Hamilton. Everyone calls me DL, and I'm a native West Virginian currently living in Charleston. I'm an attorney here. And I'm Karen Ireland, and I live in Charleston, and um, I work um, in renewable energy. I run a a nonprofit called West Virginia Sun, and I also am active with um, water issues here in West Virginia. Why did you all decide to go to Standing Rock? Um, what were your reasons for heading out there? It's a long trek. My family had a plan to go to the Macy's Parade in New York City to see the WVU marching band, and I thought if I'm going to have a heavy carbon footprint, I'm going to Standing Rock because my attention had been in that direction for months. 
my mother was from the eastern plains of Montana, and so I've just always been drawn to the prairie Indians, and it just seemed a much better way for me to spend Thanksgiving. And I was so right because I feel like it was the premier experience of my life to date. And it was all the better when I learned that Karen was going. <laughs> yeah, thank, I, that's how I feel, too. I, I, um, I was drawn because I felt um, particularly an affinity for people who are fighting to protect water. Um, but when I started to see the videos coming from North Dakota, um, like in August, and a lot of times um, they were videos of, of young people kind of leading the way and just knowing how hard it is to organize and get people um, to take action even when their own water is, is threatened or has actually been um, contaminated. I, I just was, that was really compelling for me to see that and see this kind of um, movement happening. And so I just felt like I want to go be part of it. Because just as in eastern Kentucky, um, West Virginia's water has been contaminated by coal mining. So we have a real connection to what is happening at Standing Rock. I mean, it's not just a political or environmental solidarity, but just a real connection on every level in terms of wanting to make our home land a sacrifice place for fossil fuels. Right. How long were you all at Standing Rock? I was just there from Thanksgiving to I was leaving on Monday, but they had their first snow, so I got home on Wednesday. Yeah, and I was there from Wednesday to Sunday. So, the obvious question, what was it like when you all were there? You go first. Cold. You go first, Karen. <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> we all know that, you know, for me, it was really, the entire experience was challenging because I was just outside of my comfort zone, like, physically, and, um, I mean, I've never camped and all of that, but it was, it was unforgettable. It was beautiful. It was um, moving, and it like I today actually last night I dreamt about it, and I know that the veterans are starting to to show up, and I just want to go back. So you were camping uh, with well, how many other people there? They estimated that there were uh, six thousand people there over the Thanksgiving weekend, but yeah, I've seen I'm not 15. sure how accurate that was, but there were a lot of us. Yeah, when we, when we drove in on Wednesday, <clears throat> it was a sprawling camp, and it was remarkable to, to drive up on it, but Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I mean, the, the cars just started pouring in, and by the time we left on Sunday, like the photos that we have from the difference between Wednesday and Sunday is remarkable. And actually, I just read something yesterday that said 15,000. I, I read know. that too, but I didn't know if that might have meant 
over the All whole, the, that they were estimating how many people had been there over the course of the camp. Oh, okay. But, but I did see 15,000, and there's 2,000 veterans. Actually, there's more. That was their capacity, and they have exceeded their capacity. So it's going to be another big weekend at Standing Rock. And it is truly becoming a standoff at Standing Rock. And one thing I wanted to convey to your listeners is that you can get a real sense of being there from being on Facebook and other websites because the drones that we have in the air and the amazing videos and, of course, stories uh, and, and radio about the experience there, I mean, I felt like I knew it when I got there. But it truly is a standoff of this triad of the law enforcement on the backwater bridge that is blockaded. And just toward the Missouri River from that is this sacred hill that on the top of it uh, is a compound of private security and equipment and razor wire and these huge bright lights that shine down upon the camp in a kind of evil way every night and ruin the starlight there. And then this broad expanse of the most amazing coming together of so many tribes and so many people and so much love and so much art. And it is a sight to behold. Uh, but it can't be shared uh, in a real personal way because you can take pictures of signs and things like that. But they have done such a wonderful job of maintaining their center, of maintaining their privacy, and so you can't take pictures of the people there. But with this mass of humanity, the camp is quite organized and quite clean, and people are well-fed and well-taken care of. And one thing I really noticed, it's much easier to build a road in North Dakota than it <laughs> is in our homes in Appalachia. <laughs> There's roads everywhere. <laughs> Was there anything that particularly surprised either of you when you got there or any stories that just stick out from your experience there? Well, I was just going to say it surprised me how uh, well organized it was considering how many people were there and, and the different times that people were arriving and leaving. And... Um, it was hard to sometimes get a sense of like what was kind of being um, relayed from the tribal council and what was coming from other um, factions and and so it was sometimes difficult to to know like what actions were sanctioned and not sanctioned and um, and you know the direction that things were going because we were there when the eviction notice from the Army Corps came out so it was kind of like there was a certain amount of tension about, you know, what might happen and, and things were kind of being planned on the fly. So that was remarkable. But even in spite of all of that, it was <clears throat> really well organized. Like DL said, it, you know, people were ate regular meals and uh, there were meetings every day and orientations and trainings, nonviolent um, direct action trainings. And so it was really like a, a you know, a community, like a small town that was growing up on the on the plains. It mostly just exceeded my expectations, but I was surprised uh, that I got an immediate headache from the amount of 
smoke, which was mostly wood smoke, um, but I quickly got used to that. And uh, someone in radio will appreciate the amazing audio that just vibrates throughout the camp because there uh, is singing and chanting uh, to welcome every sunrise. There is drumming and singing and sharing every night at the Sacred Fire, and uh, people uh, have the opportunity to speak to whoever's gathered there throughout the day. Uh, but then um, there was also uh, someone, to, they're sort of divided into tribes and some, uh, I mean, I never saw a map, but they would sometimes point to where various Indian nations were camped. And starting at 4 a.m. one night, the singing and chanting started. And it just raises your vibration to be in the presence of those sounds. But my, I mean, I mean, every singular experience I had there was a good one, but the highlight was on Sunday because there was a direct action training that was conducted by Starhawk, who is a woman who has been an important influence in my life for decades. Uh, and uh, she was joined by an amazing uh, Dine or Navajo native uh, named Lila June uh, and a woman that I've become friends with via Facebook since I've left named Cheryl Angel. And they were planning a women's action on the bridge that would be a counter to the violence and uh, the police complete overreaction to the uh, action on the Backwater Bridge the prior Sunday. And you may have heard that that is the one that there were rubber bullets and water cannon and tear gas and, um, and there were several injuries. And it was actually an action that created significant anxiety on my part and even going. And so we just had this lovely action and that uh, it, it became a perfect day because I went from there to the casino for the... Um, benefit concert that Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown were doing uh, in response to uh, the Indigo Girls and others learning about Kelsey Warren, who is a music supporter and whose folk festival they had attended, you know, is the CEO of Equity Transfer Partners. And so these uh, environmental entertainers were none too happy once they learned uh, who Kelsey Warren was. And it was just a really heartwarming benefit, especially because John Trudell's brother was there and there was someone who was doing John Trudell's poetry. And um, Sunday was just one of the most perfect days I've ever spent. It, it was incredible. And can you tell us who John Trudell is? He was a uh, poet, a singer. Um, I think he was... Uh, member of the Sioux Nation uh, who died of cancer. But if you Google him, like he was the one that there's a poem about listening to Crazy Horse. Uh, he just um, spread the kind of amazing culture and consciousness of the indigenous people through his poetry and song. And he was the chairman of the American Indian Movement, like in the 70s. 
Okay, thank you. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, so I, I'm curious about what you're bringing back. You've already spoke some to it, but what you're bringing back to your home, to Appalachia, and what people here in central Appalachia can do um, around this issue. Well, I'm sending I'm an email you today. That. You go first. Go ahead, Deal. Go, go I feel that our actions here at Appalachia have been and will continue to be inspired by the movement at Standing Rock because it is so prayerful and it is so powerful. And, um, you know, I mean, we have an understanding that water is life. Their actions are so powerful and prayerful, and that while we have understood that water is life and are working very hard to defend our water here in Appalachia, um, the fact that they emphasize that uh, water is life, life is sacred, and that we have to defend the sacred, I feel like will kind of bring a centeredness and a consciousness to our actions here that, um, that we now know we truly are uh, protectors, even though we are framed as protesters. And I, I just feel very empowered by the spirituality and, you know, seventh generation consciousness that they remind us why we're doing what we're doing. Yeah, we, um, in terms of concrete actions, I know Deal and um, Kathy and some other friends, specifically photographers who went with us, are planning a, like a community forum to share our experience and, and also like offer suggestions for people, ways that people can help. And hopefully we'll be able to draw that connection for people who don't who might not see it, like between our experience and um, the experience of, of the people protecting their water there. But even today, like I'm emailing people around town to see, um, DL, you'll get yours, but to see what kind of other actions we might want to take. Because I just saw on, um, I think it was, I can't remember what Facebook page it was, but there's a calendar out there now, like every day in action um, for the month of December. So I hope we can plan one for West Virginia. Yeah, I have been a nonviolent direct action person since um, in the 70s, but they are so... um, clear that they are coming from a place of love, not anger, that it is shown all the time. So that's another good reminder um, of how we treat and view those who at this point in time are participating on the other side. Because um, they were saying our enemy is fear. And I mean, I can understand why people are afraid from moving away from a fossil fuel economy, but that is a fear that we have to conquer, and I believe that we will win. Again, that was D.L. Hamilton and Karen Ireland from Charleston, West Virginia. We heard them talk a bit about the energy and spirit of the camp, 
And in that vein, we happened to come across a news piece we found pretty interesting. From a press release that came out December 2nd, we learned that members from the camp were going to deliver donations to the Morton County Sheriff's Department. The donations delivered would fulfill a supply list the Sheriff's Department had released in late November. To quote directly from the press release, quote, North Dakota taxpayers have already bankrolled the Morton County Sheriff's Department with approximately $10 million for the suppression of peaceful water protectors. Despite this excessive financial support, Morton County officers are asking taxpayers to donate supplies. The Ocheti Shakowin camp is a prayer camp and a resilient, self-sufficient community. The camp is full of abundance in spirit, in humanity, and in resources. Ocheti Shakowin has enough to share. Generosity is an original teaching for the Lakota. End quote. There is live radio at the camp, Standing Rock Resistance Radio. The radio crew covers everything from press conferences to one-on-one interviews with water protectors to stories and songs that are being shared. We wanted to give you a small peek into the camp, so here's a piece from Standing Rock Resistance Radio's Campfire series. Jeff Kelly speaks of the power at the camp and shares a water song. A special thank you to Govinda Dalton of Earth Cycles and Brenda Norell from Standing Rock Resistance Radio for allowing us to use this audio. All right. Gentlemen over here, Jeff Kelly. Uh, surprise a few people here. He's got a song and some words for our. He wants to share with us. Bonjour, welcome to Gizik Dego, Pijou Dotem, Bajikomiteo. Anigamigan Donji. My name is Flashing Blue Light in the Sky. I'm from the Lynx Clan, and I walked through my first doorway of the midday. And I'm from Anigaming in Ontario. I went to Bemidji today, or <laughs> I went to to uh, Bismarck this afternoon, and I I participated in that that action that that happened today. It was a beautiful thing. Uh, during the during the the ceremony, I I smoked my pipe. And and when you do that, you're you're you you're open to the whole universe. And I could I could I could feel all the people connected, and I could feel the river. They'd given their tobacco to the river. I could feel the river returning that connection, and that's strength right there. That love, that 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 connection with the universe. I had a dream a long time ago. I think I was probably in my twenties of what happened to the world. A long time ago, we, we, we trusted in the universe to provide for us. We didn't take more than we had than we had to, and it was always there for us to, to uh, it was always there for us to have. We didn't take any more. And somewhere over across the seas, there was 
some kind of famine or drought and people started starving and they had to start keeping more than they needed to be able to survive those hard times. And it turned into a sickness that they had to get more and more and more to survive, take from each other to survive. And, and that sickness spread and grew because they were taking from people that still lived. I saw how that sickness grew and then it came over across here. They organized it into religions and, and governments, that sickness. And it came over here and it affected us. And this is, this is what we need to remember, that we're not separate from the universe. We're just a part of it. We're, we're part of Gitchamanitou's works. We're just gears in the whole machine. And, and the way we connect with that is with our heart. Midday, the universe of the heart, the heart is the universe. We can connect with that and it feels like love. It is love. That's our, that's our strength. That's our power. And I see this with all these people that have all these differences. But here we are doing the same thing and, and respecting each other and loving each other for who we are. And this is where the real power is. We don't have to fight anything. If they could see what I see, they would say, Hey, I want to I know what this is. So... Uh, I, I want to I want to sing a song. This is my my spirit helper, uh, is uh, is Manitouakwe, uh, spirit woman. She's from the sky, and uh, it's an old 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 song. Uh, she, I see her. Some people see her whole body. I just see her face, and she's all gold. When when she comes, and and she's always about making those connections with people, bringing me people into my life that that help me that help guide me, that help show me what I'm supposed to be, who I'm supposed to be. So that's, that's, that's Manitouakwe. And she also, because of a woman's spirit, she has to do with the water. So it, it, it made sense that I have to sing this, that I have to, that I ha I'm, I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to try, I'm going to, I'm going to sing this song.
migrate. So many different people from so many different walks of life have been going to support the water protectors at Standing Rock. Most recently, we heard about organization among military veterans throughout the United States who are organizing a deployment to go and support what is happening there. Over 2,000 veterans were organizing to deploy to Standing Rock over the first weekend of December. We were able to talk with military veteran Christopher Boulay of Everts, Kentucky, as he began his deployment. Christopher Boulay, Everts, Kentucky. So you've been busy. Um, you're helping to organize a Kentucky deployment. Is that right? Yes. Could you just describe um, for us the deployment you've been a part of? We're going. Our mission is to go up there and assist the um, the natives in protecting the water source of the Missouri River from the dapple. Okay, and so you're going to Standing Rock. Could you just say a little bit about um, what's going on up there? What, what, why you all are going? I chose to go for the simple fact that there, the inhumane treatment that's been going on over there. Um, you don't. It, it, any veteran will tell you that you don't go and shoot a uh, a non-lethal, any kind of weapon with a non-lethal round becomes lethal when you start shooting it at point-blank range. Uh, the treatment that these guys have been getting, unprovoked, mind you, um, there's been a completely peaceful protest of the Dakota Access Pipeline for months. With They have not provoked any violence in any way towards, uh, towards DAPL itself. But these unprovoked attacks have to stop, and that's personal, my personal mission and what's motivated me to go. I cannot, I cannot personally speak for the, other, for the others. Could you say a little bit about um, why um, you think it's important for Kentucky veterans in particular to be a part of this? I think it's important for all veterans, whether you're in Kentucky or whether you're in as far west as California or as far north as Maine. It doesn't matter where you are in this country. As a veteran, you swore an oath to protect and defend the laws of the United States, the people of the United States, and the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The people have called upon us for help to once again uh, keep that oath that we swore. We have a duty to do. We have a duty to the people. So, what is where have you been stationed? What has been your um, your career in the military? I was, uh, I've been all over the place with the military. I did, I did six years myself, and I've been to several different duty stations in places around the world. Um, my, my job was 11 Bravo Infantry. Um, how does this feel different? Honestly, it doesn't. I, I actually, the way that, the way the government has been condoning and uh, the way these guys have been treating the, the native residents of uh, the of the Sioux nations, uh, this feels like an actual deployment. I feel like I'm going back in country on my 
The only difference is I'm on my own home soil. Uh, when can, can you share with us when you are heading north? We are leaving as we speak. So you are in deployment right now? Yes. As far as how long the deployment's going to be, that's, up, that's on each individual. Anyone, everyone is free to come and go as they please. My job is simply to a won't do my part when I get up there, but to make sure that those that are going with me get up there as well. It is very much appreciated with all the support that we've been getting from the general public. Um, I personally want to thank them for everybody for what they've done for us, what they're continuing to do. And we're back live with uh, Jonathan, Elizabeth, and Tanya. And we wanted to do the last segment live because, um, as many listeners probably know, a lot has happened. And um, we wanted to give you the most current, up-to-date news about Standing Rock and uh, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline that we could. So, um, Elizabeth? Yeah, so um, this has been a learning process for all three of us for sure, and hopefully um, you've enjoyed some of the folks you're able to talk with that were gracious enough to spend some of their time um, talking about things with us. And uh, we should mention that we did reach out to Energy Transfer Partners for an interview, and they did respond to us, but they said they would not be able to accommodate our request. So did want to let you all know that. But um, so what happened yesterday is that the... U.S. Army Corps of Engineers denied the easement for the Dakota Access Pipeline, which would cross under the Missouri River, which is north of where the camp is at Standing Rock. Um, So it is a victory for the water protectors there. And also what folks are saying today is that a lot of folks are saying that it is – a battle that's won, but they're, uh, you know, fighting a war. So it's quite likely a temporary thing. Um, So... What happened is the easement was denied and an environmental impact statement was ordered, which will look at the various route alternatives. Um, uh, It doesn't necessarily mean the pipeline wouldn't be built there at some point. Um, So I've heard someone describe it as hitting the pause button and kind of going on into further study. And folks are going back and forth about whether it'll actually stop the construction or not. Um, It is – it would be illegal for energy transfer partners to do the drilling, but it doesn't mean that won't happen and that they wouldn't just opt to pay for – whatever the legal penalties are for doing so. And I've heard various reports today, and I don't have the latest on that, about whether they are going forward on the drilling. One of the things I heard, um, and y'all correct me if you've heard other things, is that they have continued the drilling, and the fine is 50000 a day, so they're opting to incur that penalty. But I highly suggest that you go out and do some research yourself and see what you see. And we'll hear in just a few minutes um, – a little bit about the response from uh, Energy Transfer Partners. Uh, they did respond to the Army Corps' decision. Um, and that's the briefest of what uh, has happened over the past 24 hours. And we'll hear just a little bit more. But again, um, urge you to seek out more information and resources on your own. And one thing I would add, just uh, since I've dealt a little bit with um, environmental policy is 
um, the the Army Corps, because it's on Army Corps land, they did not have to do an environmental impact statement, which is a pretty sorry comprehensive document uh, about environmental impact. They just did an environmental assessment. But now they are going back and saying we should do an environmental impact statement for these different proposals they're making. So it sounds like they are going to, um, as of right now, do a little more in-depth environmental impact statement for the alternative routes. Um, Tanya, do you have something? Yeah, and I mean, I think it seems as though um, really the the statement from Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, uh, the chairman released a statement just today, I think this came in, and it is very um, celebratory, certainly, and definitely hands all of the celebration of this moment um they call this a historic moment and definitely say that this is all in due to the the power of people coming together um the power of um they say hundreds of tribes came together in a display of unity tribal unity not seen in hundreds of years and couldn't have done this alone they thank all the people who've prayed and um sent sent a lot of strength in multiple ways um but I think one of the most significant things is that um, this is this isn't over. They definitely say this is not the end of this battle or the the battle for lots of environmental um, land protection, water protection all over this country and the world. I guess. Um, right. And one of the things that I think points strongly to what you're just saying, Tanya, is the statement put out by Energy Transfer Partners and Sunoco Logistics. Their response to the Army Corps. Uh, is that um, the administration statement today, this is a quote, um, that it would not at this time issue an easement to Dakota Access Pipeline is purely political action, which the administration concedes when it states it has made a quote-unquote policy decision. Washington Code for a Political Decision. This is nothing new from this administration since over the last four months the administration has demonstrated by its action and inaction that it intended to delay a decision in this matter until President Obama is out of office, end quote. And then also in it they say that they're fully committed to ensuring that this vital project, quote, vital project, is brought to completion and fully expected to complete construction of the pipeline vital project is brought to completion and fully expected to complete construction of the pipeline without any additional rerouting in and around the lake, end quote. Um, so that's kind of the response, and it goes back to what Tanya was saying about the response of, of the tribe and the water protectors, that they're celebrating this victory because it is a victory for them, um, but also are prepared to you know, be in this for the long haul, as yeah. they have been for yeah, the 500 plus yeah. years. Yeah, I think it's a victory for anyone who drinks water and uses water on the planet so it's a, it's a win for everyone and i think we're gonna we have to we've run out of time here although we could probably go on and on and um we're gonna send out uh we're gonna have an outro song here by real world string band which is actually a song in multiple languages that talks about the um indigenous roots here in appalachia and also a lot of the modern water issues um and just sings um about a lot of the things that our interviewees talked about over the course of this program. Yeah, so thank you all so much for hanging out with us and going through this process with us. And if there are topics y'all want to hear covered on Mountain Talk, get in touch with us here at WMMT.
gani kisha keshti halahiu dikeshi agwatanato hiya kada hiya amo agwatanato Ia hia elo agua tuli si ko tadi nashkia yawi ke haia alesku aya iushti who owns apple to what's happened down through time those not born and raised here claim what's long been yours and mine creek and Cherokee Choctaw and Shawnee when native nations roam these mountains were their home Scottish and Irish Welsh and English made these mountains home and claimed them for their own who owns Appalachia what's happened down through time those not born and raised here claim what's long been yours and mine Kishti Elo Dagani Kishta Kishti Halahi Tikeshi Apudana To Hiya Kata Hiya Amo Apudana To Kokantnis bought her stripper and logged her turned to waterfire These hills hold my soul, King Cole owns my land, oil barons own King Cole, it's time to make our stand.